Good morning. Happy Sabbath. All right, let's, uh, let's begin class uh, with prayer. Russell, would you have prayer for us this morning? Eternal Father, we come before you today to acknowledge you as our creator and our redeemer, and we want to thank you for the great lengths that you've gone to to win humanity back to acceptance. Please guide our study this morning as we complete this quarter. Um, as I, as I continue to ask blessings for this class corporately and individually. When you come again, may we all be ready. Amen. 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 Uh, somebody read for us our memory text. Our memory text, Sabbath lesson. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give. Matthew 10 8. Any thoughts about that text? It doesn't apply today. Now, I was going to ask is, uh, is the Bible telling us this is what we are supposed to be doing today? How many of you have done these things? I don't see any hands. Hmm. So, as I read this, uh, I first want to say I believe that these things were instructed and occurred in a literal fashion in Christ's day. But is it possible that in addition to the literal healing and cleansing and raising and casting out, that there are actual object less object lesson or metaphorical applications to a bigger issue. For instance, do we believe that the children of Israel literally crossed the Red Sea on dry ground? Do we believe that? Yes. But is it also a metaphor for baptism? First Corinthians ten two. They were all baptized into Moses in the clouds and in the sea. What about do we believe there was a literal flood that destroyed the world and eight people were saved in the ark? Yes. Was it also a metaphor for baptism, dying to the old life, and coming out the other side to a new life in Christ? 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21. God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. So, in these two examples, do we have literal events that had larger metaphorical applications? Do we find examples like this all through the Bible where there are literal events that have actual uh, object lessons or acted out demonstrations of what's to happen in the great controversy? Can you think of any? Yeah, where they all year long they had all these various like festivals, the tabernacles and all this kind of thing. That was something they actually did. But it also meant uh, something in their spiritual journey. Okay, it's clearly something they actually did, and that's something that was all clearly, clearly acted out symbolism. What about the children of Israel themselves? Were they in the bondage of, of slavery in Egypt? Mm-hmm. And did they have a, a savior, Moses, come and deliver them from that bondage? Does that symbolically represent uh, the world and the bondage of sin? And Christ, uh, who came to free us from the bondage of, of sin? And did the children of Israel receive special bread from heaven that came down for them to feed upon, nurtured them? Did Christ come down and say he was the bread of heaven that we are to feed upon? You see, are these literal real events, did they happen? I believe they did. Did they have a a meaning that could teach us something about what's happening in the great controversy and our ultimate healing? 
How about the disciples on the sea? Do we believe that they were on the sea and had real storms come up on the sea? And they fought with their or human might, and, and only when they were overcome and discouraged did they turn to Christ, and, and then they were delivered from the storms? Is that a metaphor for how we fight with our own problems and storms of life and storms of sin, and that only when we oftentimes are overcome and discouraged that we'll fall down and plead, Christ, don't you care that we're about to die? And, and then he will come in and as we turn to him and, and calm the storms and bring us to peace. Then what about these instructions in Matthew? Well, I do believe, again, that they were literal. They were literally healing people, raising the dead, casting out demons, so forth. I believe that was all literal. Is it God's primary purpose? Is God's primary goal from where he sits to heal our earthly physical bodies from our current earthly diseases so that we can live to an old age and die at 100? Is that his goal? No. Is it his goal to heal the leprosy, if we had leprosy, so that we could die of an old age on this earth? Is it his goal to raise people from the dead back to a life in the fallen human nature on this earth so they could live another 50 or 60 years and die at 100 on this earth? Is that his goal? No, that is not God's primary goal. So what is God's primary goal for us? Eternal life, life, reconciliation with him. So if we re-examine the the commission here with the eternal thoughts involved, what what, what might come to mind? Are we to bring a message of of salvation so that people will be saved for eternity? Do we have that commission? Remember the Greek word? The Greek word for save save means? To heal, salvo, salvation, heal, that's exactly right. So we're taking a a message of eternal healing to the world. So let's go back and look at that. Um, That first one, we're to go to all nations and, what is it? First thing there, we're to heal the sick. So we're to take a message of healing from the sickness of sin to the world. Healing of the heart, healing of the mind, healing of the character. We're to take that message to the world. How about the leprosy? What does leprosy represent symbolically in the Bible? Sin. 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 Yes. Are we to be taking a message that will heal us from the leprosy of sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Remember, what were the lepers required to do in that culture? Unclean. Unclean. Are our hearts and minds, apart from Christ, unclean? Unclean. And are we to take a cleansing message? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Are we to have the, the fear and selfishness removed and God's character of love and trust restored within? What about raising the dead? Now, for those who are here in our first hour, we talked about this very issue. Those who do not trust Christ are condemned already. Why are they condemned already? John chapter 3. We're born that way. Born that way, meaning we're born in what condition? Terminal. Are we not born in a terminal condition? In a condition that without intervention, without God's intercession, without God acting in some way, what will be the natural course of our existence if God doesn't step in? We'll die. Not inflicted punishment. God doesn't have to act to kill. See, this is the great lie of Satan. Satan's great lie is, you know, the problem with sin is that it broke God's rules, and God, to be just, has to inflict penalties. And if we could just get God to get a little self-control, 
we can get him to, to just hold his wrath and his anger in check. If he would just, just not be so mean all the time. If he just leave us alone in our corner of the universe, you know, we could live for eternity in our sin because there's nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with God. You see, the, the traditional view that God has to inflict death puts God in a horrible light, doesn't it? But we understand that we are in a terminal state. If God does nothing, well, we die. So God didn't do nothing. Love compelled. Love compelled him to intervene, to intercede. And so we were already dead in our trespasses and sin. If you want to look at it, you can look at the whole world or a bunch of dead people walking around. We're all terminal. All, you could say we're all HIV infected. We all have cancer. Whatever metaphor you want to use. And Christ is the remedy which heals, which restores free, free to all who will take it. So do we, do we have a message? And what about the casting out of devils? Are we not to proclaim the truth about God, which casts out of the heart and minds the lies of Satan? Uh, Hebrews 2.14 says that Christ took upon himself human flesh, that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Did you all know the devil holds the power of death? By the way, you can hold that power, too. I don't know if you knew it. You can hold the power of death. What's the power of death? It's very simple. Believing the lies that Satan has told about God. John 17, 3. This is, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, and now ascend. So according to Jesus, life eternal is to know God. Well, then... If life eternal is knowing God, then eternal death would be not knowing God. So the power of death is the lies that we tell about God that keep people from knowing Him. That's the power. Christ came to destroy that power. Why? How? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. The truth will set you free. The truth destroys lies, wins us back to trust. And so we are all held in the bondage of fear, insecurity, distortions about God, this self-centeredness that, that is terminal. And so the truth that Christ brings casts out the lies, breaks the power that separates us from God, restores us to reconciliation, frees us from demonic uh, influence or control because the demons work through lies and through the mind. So, when we look back at the text in this light, healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, raising the dead, and casting out demons, how many of us are, are, are doing this? We're supposed to be doing it. If we look at it with an eternal reality, do you think that's an abuse of, of what Christ meant? Or do you think maybe that's really the real essence of what he was talking about? What would God prefer? That we just heal people for another 100 years or 50 years on this earth? Or ha- introduce them to him for eternal healing? I think the key to this text is the last part. Freely you have received, freely give. Whatever we have received from heaven, we, we need to internalize that and then share it. And so, that freely you received, freely give is another way of describing love. Love. The circle of love, the law of love, the principle upon which all life is based. And so I agree, it's the key, because the key to healing 
is coming back in harmony with the law of love, to casting out the truth about God's character of love, and so forth and so on. You're exactly right. The key is right there as well, the, the law of love, which is God's character, the circle of beneficence. That's great. Okay, read, somebody read the second paragraph for us uh, in Sabbath's lesson there. This week recaps some of the main highlights of this quarter's study. It seeks to ascertain some of the traits, themes, and practices of Jesus that may have positively influenced the disciples, elements that must form the foundation of our work as disciples as well. Ultimately, the goal is to seek applications that can provide patterns for discipleship in the 21st century. And what, as, as we think about patterns of discipleship, what is the most important, the most essential element to being a disciple of Christ? What would you all say? Knowing, knowing the truth God. about God. Knowing the truth about God, okay. And as we know the truth about God, clearly, that, that's, that's key, that's central. Um, and then, as we move forward in that knowledge, then what would be the most important goal or desire in our heart as a disciple of Christ? Would it not be to reveal the same exact truths Christ revealed? Mm-hmm. Is, is that not the central thing that as a disciple of Christ we want to take the message of Christ in the clearest possible ways to the world would that would that be fair mm-hmm. okay would we want to say even like in revelation 12:17 about the dragon which was enraged with this woman and the woman is church. the church and the church is married to Christ. Christ went off to make war against the rest of her offspring and the rest of our offspring are those who are living down at the end of time. Uh, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Jesus. So to be a disciple of Christ would be, be people who, who hold to his testimony. Would, would that be fair? Yeah. All right, so my questions then, if his testimony. In Sunday's lesson, let's read the second paragraph and then come back to this idea of testimony of Jesus. So somebody read the second, second paragraph. Besides compassion, Jesus showed forgiveness. Time and again, the disciples observed Jesus forgive the sins of so many people. They saw how he treated Simon, the former leper, who looked down on Mary. The disciples saw Jesus' ultimate act of forgiveness in his prayer for his enemies while they hung him on the cross. Peter, too, experienced Jesus' forgiveness in a special way. At the arrest, he forsook Jesus and fled. Later, at the trial... Three times he denied knowing Jesus, yet Jesus forgave him and restored him to fellowship in the presence of his fellow disciples. So what is Jesus' testimony about forgiveness? From your own history, what you read here, what you know of the Bible, what is Jesus' testimony about God's forgiving nature or character? It's for everyone. Is it free? Yes. Or does does some payment need to be made in order for God to forgive, according to Jesus' testimony? And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if we hold the Jesus' testimony, what will we teach about God's forgiveness? It's free. Oh, it is there. It's free to who? Everyone. Is there anyone God doesn't forgive? No. Was well, that what's commonly taught? No. Hmm. Wow. I think, I, I think maybe a lot of the confusion is about, for instance, why is there no remission for sin without the shedding of blood? Oh, what a good question. Is that not a good question, guys? <laughs> that is a perfect question. We have to answer the question, what, what does remission mean? If you had cancer and your parents took you to the physician and the physician began to treat you, do you want the physician to say, hey, I know this cancer you have is because you smoked cigarettes for 25 years and I forgive you. Is that what you want? 
No. Or do you want the cancer to go into remission? remission? You want the cancerous cells to remit back to their precancerous healthy state. So without the shedding of blood, does that mean that God was unable to, in his heart, extend forgiveness? Or is it that without the shedding of blood, our characters could not be remitted back to God's original ideal that he created mankind and Adam to be? Which do you think it's more likely? That God could not extend forgiveness? God from heaven couldn't say, I love you guys and I forgive you. Unless Jesus died in order to earn that? Or was it that even though God forgave, our condition could not be fixed, healed, remitted, without Christ's life and death? What she thinks more reasonable? You see, we have this twisted idea. How do we know? Can somebody be saved without being forgiven? No. No. Can somebody be forgiven without being saved? Yes. yes. The, those who put Christ on the cross. Christ, who is equal with the Father, is he not? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is God in human flesh. says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, just so you're very clear on this, prior to his death, when they brought that man who was paralyzed through his whole life, and they broke up the roof tiles, and they lowered him down to Christ while he was teaching, remember what Christ said before he healed him? Yes, so that you might know that the Son of Man hath authority on earth to forgive sins. Take up your bed and walk. So the one on the cross is the one who has the authority to forgive, does he not? Did he forgive those who put him there? Does that mean they were saved? Were they now his friends? Were they reconciled to him? No, forgiveness comes from God's heart without any external pressure or pleading. God is forgiving. But forgiveness alone doesn't fix our problem. Forgiveness... No, forgiveness alone doesn't... For instance, if God forgives, but Christ never comes to achieve the mission that he came to achieve, we would be forgiven, but we would still be terminal. We'd still be dying. We haven't had a remedy to heal us. Christ is the remedy. It's more than just... I'll, I'll just take you through it very quickly. We were created in love. What is it in, in, in harmony with the circle of love? which is that principle of other-centered giving and beneficence. All life in the universe is designed to operate on this. You're all familiar with that law, right? Uh, as you breathe out, you give away carbon dioxide freely. And the plants give back oxygen to you. If you decide you don't want to be a giver anymore, and you want to be a taker, and you want to keep everything your body makes, and so you're not going to give away any more carbon dioxide, the only way to do that is to stop breathing and to die. The circle of giving is the circle of life. It's the circle of love. And there are example after example from nature. The waters in the, from the oceans go to the clouds, rain over the lands, lakes, rivers, and streams, flow back to the ocean, all the circle of life. Body water separates, it stagnates, and it dies. We could go through many examples. The circle of giving is the circle of life. So what broke the circle of love in the heart of man? Lies. Lies. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in Fear and selfishness. See, I believe a lie. I don't trust you anymore. Now I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid you're going to hurt me. I'm afraid you take advantage of me. And therefore, since I'm afraid of you and can't trust you to have my back, I've got to watch out for myself. So we become self-referenced, self-focused. And fear and selfishness results in acts of sin, bad behaviors that we do, and those acts of sin result in damage to mind, character, and body. This is a terminal condition. Without intervention, we would die. Christ came to heal the problem. Number one, where, does, where did the problem start? Lies about God. That's what started in heaven, started in Eden. Lies about God. So Christ comes and reveals the truth about God, which destroys the lies 
You'll know the truth. The truth sets you free. Wins us back to trust. But he did more than that. There's a two-step process. One, reveal the truth about God. Reveal the truth about sin. Reveal the truth about Satan. Give us the truth so we can understand what's really happening and make that choice to trust God. But two, he provided a remedy that actually heals. And what was the remedy? He took upon himself our sick condition. Christ is a unique being in all creation history. Adam was made out of the dust of the ground. God breathed into his life, the breath of life. He became a perfect, sinless, living being. Eve was taken from his side, two sinless beings. Were any of you created that way? No. no, none of us. We came from a sinful mother and a sinful father. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms chapter 51. Jesus was not either of those. He didn't come from the dust of the ground, breathing those nostrils of breath of life. He also didn't have sinful parents. But Galatians chapter 4, 4 tells us he was born of a woman under law. He had a sinful mother. But his father was God. He is a unique being in all creation history. His humanity is unique. He took upon himself a humanity like ours, subject to like passions as ours. Hebrews 4, verse 15, that he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. And James chapter 1, 13 says that we shouldn't say God tempts because God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. Christ was tempted in every way just like we are, and we're tempted by our feelings. Christ took upon himself a humanity capable of temptation, temptation just like us. But his father was God. So he was born with a heart and mind totally connected with the circle of love, a pure heart and mind. And so what do you see in Christ? But these two antagonistic principles about battling it out, the principle of self-sacrificing love versus the principle of me first, selfishness, survival of the fittest. And all the temptations were on these lines. If you're the Son of God, turn this rock into bread. Save yourself. Save yourself. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down off this temple. Exalt yourself. Promote yourself. If you're the Son of God, bow down to me and save yourself. And in Gethsemane, tell me, did Christ experience powerful feelings in Gethsemane? Powerful feelings. And what were those feelings tempting him to do? If he followed his feelings, would he have gone through the cross or he ran home to heaven? He would have saved himself. You see, he was being tempted with feelings to save self. But when each temptation came, he said, No one can take my life. I will give my life freely. Father, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And so in the human being, God-man, Jesus Christ, the battle was waged and won over the very infection that kills us, this fear and selfishness. And he developed in his humanity perfect Christ-like character. He restored God's law of love in this species and purge this fear and selfishness from it. And thus he rose on the third day, and he said to his disciples, it is expedient for you that I go. Because if I go, the Spirit will come, the Comforter, and he will take what is mine and make it known to you. Christ achieved the victory we can't achieve. He takes Christ's victory. He takes Christ's mind. We have the mind of Christ. He takes Christ's character. There's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. He takes Christ's strength, his character, his love, his heart, and he reproduces it in us. So we're one to trust, open the heart, and the Holy Spirit takes what is Christ and makes it known and reproduced in us. And we get a new heart and a right spirit regenerated within by the Spirit. Achieved by Christ. It's a real, literal, regenerating process. It's not some legal fiction where somebody claims that you have pardon, but we remain just as wicked and just as sinful in heart. No, there's a regenerating process that is divine by the working of the Spirit, applying what Christ has achieved in our hearts and lives. This is the message of the gospel, the good news, that we are transformed, that we are healed, that we are regenerated, that we are won back. This is exciting stuff. Okay, question. Um, Sorry it took so long. About the forgiveness. Jesus forgave those the, um, soldiers that were crucifying him, but it's not a healing process for them unless they really 
understand that they're being forgiven, right? And do you, you don't have to ask for forgiveness. I mean, when we do something, does Jesus just automatically forgive us, or does he... Because... That's the difference between forgiveness and repentance. Excellent question. Okay, in Bible terms, what's necessary for salvation is not God extending forgiveness. What's necessary for salvation is what's called reconciliation. And reconciliation requires two things. It requires the offended party to genuinely forgive, but it requires the offender to genuinely repent. And repentance is an actual transformation or regeneration of heart. So you no longer have within you the evil that led you to offend the person in the first place. And when both repentance and forgiveness occur, then reconciliation occurs. And that's uh, another way of saying salvation. And so think about children and parents. Um, if, you have a, if you have a child, parents, you have a, a child, three, four, five-year-old child, and your child steals a cookie, your child tells a fib. Are you now full of wrath and anger and somebody must intercede in your behalf to get you to be forgiving to that child? Do you now find that you must mete out just punishment? And of course, the the just punishment in this case is death. Unless someone intervenes to pay that penalty in that child's behalf. Unfortunately, they have an older brother that comes running in, kill me instead, daddy, for that cookie they stole. Does that make sense to anybody? Do you need someone to plead with you to be forgiving? Or you've already forgiven the child, and your concern is, okay, my child has got some character traits that are developing that are very unhealthy, and I want to intercede in my child's life to discipline. Discipline means to disciple or to teach, not to punish, which comes from punitive, means to exact vengeance. We don't want to exact vengeance on our child, do we? We want to heal, restore, redeem, discipline the child. So we intervene in love with discipline to turn the child's heart, and the child repents. I'm sorry, Daddy. And we'll never do that again. It's okay, I've already forgiven you. And there's hugs and kisses all around. There's reconciliation. Is that not what God is working to achieve in us? Yes, absolutely. That's what it's all about. So it's never, ever been a process of trying to get God to forgive. This goes back to the question at hand. Do we believe the testimony of Jesus? Or have we accepted lies about God so we see Jesus in one light and we see the Father in a completely different light? Yes, Kathy. I think it's... In 25 words or less, we think, of, like you're saying, that when we ask for forgiveness, somehow something clicks in God and He says, oh, okay, I can do that. But the forgiveness is already there. I think the asking is a demonstration of us recognizing that it's there. That's right. Because we are very physical beings. We do physical things to represent thoughts and ideas. No, there's no question. We have to. So Christ extended forgiveness to those men at the foot of the cross, but they didn't open their hearts to receive the forgiveness that he was extending, so they weren't transformed by it. So there needs to be the opening of the heart. Yes, Father, please forgive me. Well, I already have. And then there's that opening of the heart and trust to him, and there's that repentance that comes. So, yes, there is a process on our part. And so, and asking is the metaphor of opening the heart. Father, please forgive me. It's opening the heart to receive the forgiveness that he's already has in his heart for you. Absolutely. So I'm not saying that we don't need to ask God's forgiveness, but not in order to plead with him to get him to be forgiving. It's the process of us opening the heart to receive. Because what does it say? That the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Which came first? Our repenting attitude and and desire for God's forgiveness, or God's forgiving attitude and his love seeking to bring us to repentance? Which came first? kindness. Yes, while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. God has always been on our side. Yes. First John 1, 9, you know that famous if, if we uh, ask him, he will forgive us our sins. But the verse before that actually says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and there's no truth in us. In other words, it's talking about our attitude. 
So if if we feel like we don't need repentance, right. then we're not going to even ask for the forgiveness. The forgiveness is still there. And some people say, well, what about the passages that talk about Jesus as our advocate pleading to the Father? Well... Pleading to the Father or with the Father? That's what they, they ask. They ask because that's how they say it. Okay. Big difference. <laughs> yeah. Pleading to the Father with the Father. What Jesus said in John 16, 26... Uh, up to this point, you've asked nothing in my name. When you do, it will be done. I, I, I say not unto you that I will pray the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you. John 16, 24 through 26. Go read it. He says, up to this time, I've been speaking very figuratively in figures of speech and metaphors and parables. But now I'm going to speak plainly. I, I'm not going to pray the Father for you because the Father himself loves you. And the disciples say, thank you. Now you're telling us plain about the Father. So Jesus says this is plain talk. The disciple says this is plain talk. And the plain talk is Jesus will not pray the Father for us because the Father himself loves us. Well, Romans chapter 8, if God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his son but gave him up, how will he not also with him give us all things? It is God who justifies. Who is it that justifies? God's justifying, setting us right. Who is it that condemns Christ Jesus? No, he is at the Father's hand or side and is also interceding for us. In other words, in addition to the Father, guys, don't be discouraged. You've got the Father on your, on your side up there. He's interceding your behalf. But, but you know what? You've got Jesus interceding for you, too. And if you look in verse 24 of Romans 8, Paul had already said that the Holy Spirit intercedes with groans and mutterings that we can't understand. So we've got the Holy Spirit, we've got the Father, and we've got the Son all interceding for us. Well, what does that mean? I mean, if, they're not, if, if the Son isn't interceding to the Father to get Him to be forgiving, then what are they interceding about? They are interceding with the destructiveness of sin itself. As soon as man stepped into sin, God threw Himself in between us in sin and its consequence. God stepped into the breach. God threw his hedge of protection around as in the book of Job when he's got that hedge of protection. We read in Revelation that the four angels are holding back the four winds of strife. He's holding back principalities and powers of darkness to keep them from destroying. And it says in Genesis that he put uh, in the woman, he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's been using his spirit to intercede in our hearts, to convict, to enlighten, to woo, to draw, to bring us back to him. He's been interceding with with the destructiveness and power of sin to bring us back to healing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together. There has never been a disparity. Do we believe the testimony of Jesus? I looked up the word advocate, and it's to plead a case, and we've always thought Jesus was pleading our case before God. But actually, they are pleading their case with us. That's exactly right. When Jesus says, when he talks about the pleading text, remember, Jesus said, it's expedient for you that I leave, because I will send the Comforter. He will not speak on his own. He will speak what he hears. He will take what is mine and make it known to you. Well, who is the Holy Spirit listening to, to communicate to us? Jesus. Jesus is in heaven pleading before the Father, not to the Father, to you and me, and the Holy Spirit's communicating his pleadings, son, daughter, friend, I died for you. I came. I suffered. I don't want to lose you. Please, please repent. Please don't go down that path. Sweetheart. And he's pleading, and the Holy Spirit is bringing those pleadings to us. That's the pleadings of Christ in heaven. Is that how we've always heard it? No. No. Does it make a difference to realize that? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Okay. What about... What verse is that? Where is that? The Romans? Oh, is that... Romans 8. Okay. Saving and forgiving are not synonymous, are they? No. No. What about um, atonement? What was Jesus' testimony about atonement? 
John chapter 17, 20, starting verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. This is Jesus praying. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, and all of them, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought into complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What is Jesus' testimony about atonement? Atonement at one meant. In the 1611, when the King James Bible came out, there was actually a verb, O-N-E. It was a verb, not a noun, O-N-E. If you had two people who were arguing, and you said, hey, I'm going to go one them. It was, I'm going to go one those two people. That was a verb. It means I'm going to make them at one. So I'm going to go at one them. I'm going to at one them. Put them back in harmony. Put them back in unity. And we have at one or atonement. That's what atonement means. Is that how you hear atonement? That's how Christ described it here, isn't it? That we may be one. That we may all be in unity. May have, be, have harmony. May have one in heart, mind, principle, method, motive. Back in harmony with the circle of love. Do we believe Jesus' testimony about atonement? Or do we have some other version that God is not like Jesus? Are we his disciples? Are we willing to take his testimony to the world? What was Jesus' testimony about treating his enemies? Love your enemies. Do you see the Father in that testimony? When you hear those words, you say, that's the Father talking right there. Or do you, are you longing for the day we stand on the, on the walls of the New Jerusalem when the Father rains down justice on Hitler and all those enemies of God? I know there are some Adventist people who long for the day that Hitler will get his just dues and God will make him suffer for all he's done. I've had conversations, email conversations with some people who are, who are conv- convinced that God will inflict external punishment to make people suffer for, for their wickedness. Hmm. Is that the testimony of Jesus? No. When the woman was caught into adultery and they brought her before Jesus, what did Jesus say? I don't condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Do we hear those as the words of the Father? To all of us, the Father's words are not words of condemnation. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 3, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Or in Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5, God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. Who was doing it? God. God. He's always been on our side. Any idea that has split the Godhead where you have Jesus in one way and the Father in another way, somehow the lives of Satan are operating in your mind and we are not being disciples of Christ. All right, Monday's lesson, first paragraph. Somebody read that for us. Jesus' ministry and training of his disciples took place in a highly stratified society. The lines were clearly drawn between men and women, religious hierarchy, and the common people, rich and poor, and Pharisees and publicans. The woman's place in the home was in the home, and then only certain portions of it. Do we have problems with prejudices and biases and discriminations today? And this ties right into Tuesday's lesson. In Tuesday's lesson, it talks about um, the prejudices and biases and bigotries that they had in their day as well. And the question is, uh, for the church, do we struggle with issues of sexism? Or can women hold just the same positions in the church as men? No. 
Well, why not? Are they not as capable? Are they not as valued by God? Does God not bless them with the same gifts? Hmm. Isn't it interesting in our church, which was founded by one of... Well, who is the major founder of our church? Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ. I'm talking human, human, human founder, earthly founder. Wasn't Ellen White one of the major founders of our church? Isn't it interesting still how the men have tended to dominate the hierarchy? Hmm. Interesting. And, she, and yet she did not deal with the... She just went forward. She didn't deal with the subject. Yes, I don't, if you study the history of our church, guys, you'll know that the Ellen White was in constant conflict with church leadership. Constant. The, 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 at one point in time, one of the presidents of the General Conference, she wouldn't speak to for almost two years. From her side? From her side. She refused, she, he came to her house and she closed the door, would not even talk to him. <laughs> because he refused to do what she had instructed him to do. And until he, and until he would start doing what, what he had been instructed to do, which was mission work, rather than build institutions. See, Ellen White's mission was on small ministries that would reach out and touch people where they are, and the brethren were about building large institutions that would stand on their own the test of time. She didn't have that vision. That's why she was against Battle Creek, remember? Wanted to shut it down, they built it up, and many other things. Publishing houses, she didn't want the big publishing houses, she wanted small, little local publishing houses that could print pamphlets that the, the poor could afford for just a penny a piece or something, rather than books to make big money. Uh, a different vision. We as Christians, do we have prejudices and biases? And if so, where do they come from? How do they get into our minds? Now, um, Sergey, I don't want you to feel um, offended when I say this, but when I was raised here in America, uh, I was prejudiced against the Soviet Union and Russians. Does anybody remember that? Yes, didn't we have a bias in our hearts against the Soviets and the Russians? We sure did. Where did that come from? Did that come from the Bible? How come we, how come we had that in our hearts and minds? We were afraid of them. We were afraid, but why were we afraid? Where was that coming from? Was not our society and our government, our culture, filling our minds with certain pictures and constructs that cast them as the enemy? Mm -hmm. Didn't it? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What about Muslims today? What about Muslims today? Would Muslims have a hard time being non... Uh, well, treated, with, treated with acceptance and openness here in America today? Harder than maybe they did 20 years ago? I think so. Yeah. Where did that come from? 911, certain actions of certain individuals. How come that we didn't have that same attitude towards the, the uh, oh, that guy that was hiding out in the, in the hills of North Carolina? That Christian that was blowing up abortion clinics, remember? Yeah, yeah, Rudolph, whatever his name was. Yeah. How come we didn't suddenly get biased against, you know, Christians or people from North Carolina? He was doing the Lord's work. He was doing the Lord's work, huh? <laughs> yes. How can we, what can we do to be protected from some bias? Learn the truth. The truth. The larger view. I suggest the larger view, stepping back and realizing who we are in the setting of God's creation. Is there any difference in Christ, male, female, Jew, Greek, black, white? Is there any difference? 
No. We all descend from how many parents? Adam and Eve. We're all one race. We're all one creation. We're all sick with the same disease, the same illness. Imagine, and I don't know how much you, many of you are medical people here, but for those of you who aren't, you've all heard of HIV. When people get to the condition where it's called AIDS, uh, this is where the immune system is completely compromised. You have all these opportunistic infections come. People who suffer from that do not have the identical course or, or, or progression. People with HIV, they develop AIDS. Some will get uh, a pneumonia called pneumocystis pneumonia. Some will get the cytomegalovirus infections of the retinas. Some will get uh, various forms of meningitis. Some will get Carposi sarcoma. In other words, the same illness manifests in lots of different ways. Imagine at the hospital where they're treating these patients dying from AIDS. If those who have the pneumocystis coronae uh, infection begin making fun of the people with the Carposi sarcoma. <laughs> and those uh, with the uh, cytomegalovirus infections of the eyes begin uh, criticizing and actually attacking the people with the meningitis. Would that be stupid? Well, don't you understand that's us on this planet? We are all sick with the same disease. That illness manifests itself differently in different people, but it's all the same disease. Yet we, we collect ourselves in common groups that have a similar sickness, and then we begin attacking people who look different than us. Does this make any sense at all? No, we defend ourselves from that by stepping back and realizing the truth from God's perspective. We are all suffering the same. And then when you see that person who maybe is angry and hateful and bitter and wants to do you harm, you recognize that they're suffering from the same sickness that if it wasn't for the grace of God, you'd be just like them. Is that not true? And that's why you see it doesn't matter whether somebody calls themselves Christian. Well, there were Christians in Nazi Germany who did what? There are Christians today who shoot abortion doctors. Or whether you call yourself Muslim and you fly planes into buildings. Those people are worshipping the same God, are they not? Yes. They're worshipping a God of, of coercion, torture, a God who's happy with, with such behavior. That's not the God that holds to the testimony of Jesus Christ, is it? No, Jesus says, turn the cheek to your enemy. If you love, you will give your life. That's, that's Jesus' testimony. In Wednesday's lesson, it focuses on the purpose of the church. The first paragraph calls our attention to the church's work in evangelism, ministry to outcasts, the needy, and making disciples. Now, what is the reason, what do, what do you think are the reasons that the church should be doing this stuff? And what are the reasons you've heard that we should be feeding the sick, clothing the naked, and doing all this stuff? Why should the church be doing this? What's our reason? Store up treasures in heaven. Store up treasures in heaven. There you go. We can, get, we can get better to convert them. That's what I was wondering. Do we do this as a way to manipulate people to join our organization? We don't? We do, but we're doing it because it's a natural thing out of love. Oh, okay. So maybe we can do the right thing sometimes for the wrong motives? Our goal is to do this to make sure they join our organization, agree with us, that our group gets larger than the other groups. So we have more people to attack that other group. Okay. Yes. The, the real reason, even though we might not have it in our own hearts, is that um, they just need to see the Father and Jesus through us. They just need to see who died on the cross through us. I, I said that uh, as a literature evangelist, my job is not to bring people into the Seventh Day Adventist Church, even though that as good as that could be. My job is to bring people to a knowledge of Christ, and I believe I've got more converts in other churches than I do my own. In other words, people that have come to the place 
to where they know Christ. You see, and I think that's exactly right. I, I, you look at the, the reason I feel I feel this way is because as a literature evangelist out there, if I hear anything, I hear people criticizing us for pushing the Sabbath, pushing our doctrines on them. When today I can honestly say it's not the Sabbath; it's Jesus. And uh, and if we got to and Jesus' testimony is primarily about the Father. <laughs> exactly right. And so the final message of mercy to lighten the world for Christ's coming is the truth about God. God's character of love. Christ's Observations 4.15. So exactly right. That, that is our mission. And I think sometimes we can be diverted into... Remember what Christ said to the Pharisees in his day. Remember, the, the Pharisees were part of the chosen church of God at the time. That was God's chosen people. They were the ones with the oracles of God and all the blessings of God. And he said, you search the world over to find a convert. And when you do, you make him twice the son of hell as he was before. Why? Because they were converting him to all the rituals, all the do's and the don'ts. They weren't introducing him to God. And if we're not introducing people to God, as you say, we may convert them to the Sabbath and the right understanding of the state of the dead and the sanctuary message and the right understanding of prophetic interpretation, but we may bind them and be twice the sons of hell as they already were. So what reason does a parent sacrifice to put food on the table of their child in hard times? What reason does a parent go without in order to buy a Christmas present for their child or work extra jobs in order to buy child's medicine or get them in school or even donate a kidney for their child? What is the motive for doing that? Is that not to be our motive to those out in the world that are dying of sin? And so I'm going to read this to you out of um, the Worker's Bulletin, September 9, 1902, and uh, the mission of the church. All sin is selfishness. Satan's first sin was the manifestation of selfishness. He sought to grasp power, to exalt self. A species of insanity led him to seek to supersede God. And the temptation that led Adam to sin was Satan's declaration that it was possible for man to attain something more than he already enjoyed, possible for him to be as God himself. The sowing of seeds of selfishness in the human heart was the first result of the entrance of sin into the world. Seeds of selfishness in the heart. God desires everyone to understand the evil of selfishness and to cooperate with him in guarding the human family against its terrible, deceptive powers. The design of the gospel is to confront this evil by means of remedial missionary work and to destroy its destructive power by establishing enterprises of benevolence. As a remedy for the terrible consequences into which selfishness led the human race, God gave his only begotten son to die for mankind. Did you notice that? As a remedy. I love that language that she uses, and you will find that consistent in her, her writings, rather than as a legal payment to assuage the wrath of an angry father. I love the idea, because that's exactly right. It's a remedy. How could he have given more? In this gift of he gave himself. I and my father are one, Christ said. By the gift of his son, God has made it possible for man to be redeemed and restored into oneness with him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Love is the great principle that actuates unfallen beings. With amazement, the angels behold the indifference that those who have light and knowledge manifest towards the world's unsaved. The heavenly hosts are filled with an intense desire to work through human agencies to restore in man the image of God. They are ready and waiting to do this work. The combined power of Father. Son and Holy Ghost is pledged to uplift man from his fallen state. Every attribute, every power of divinity has been placed at the command of those who are to who unite with the Savior in winning men to God. Oh, that all would appreciate the truth as it is in Jesus. Oh, that all would love God in return for the love wherein he has loved them. Now get this. Sin has extinguished the love that God placed in man's heart. The work of the church is to rekindle this love. 
The church is to cooperate with God by uprooting selfishness in the human heart, placing in its stead the benevolence that was in man's heart in the original state of perfection. Is that the primary mission that we hear from our church? To help people uproot selfishness and plant love in the hearts. That we are to come into a unity. Remember in the upper, cha- upper room, the disciples, when they were all in one accord, then the Spirit came. That in our class here, we are to develop love for each other, care for each other, support for each other. That we are interested in the welfare and beneficence of each other in this room. Are we doing that? Are we building that unity? How can we, and I'll put it out to the class, what can we do as a class to experience more in our church family of the eradication of selfishness and the experience of godly love in our church family? Question to you. You dump the heavy one. <laughs> <laughs> we really need to get to know each other because if you don't know the needs, you can't help the needs of others. She says, get to know each other. So we need to spend time together. Does that make sense? I find that if I go to potluck and sit and eat across the table from you, I'll get to know you a little bit. But if I have you to my house and eat at my table, I get to know you in a completely different way. And because of the culture we're living in today, we don't mingle at the home level like we used to 25, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Well, I agree with you. And and I'm glad you point that out because we're having a good news tour. We're going to be presenting the truth about God's character of love. There, Hopefully, if, if the Holy Spirit moves, there will be people coming to this event who are not part of our current body of believers, who may be looking for godly love to be demonstrated to them, who may be looking for someone to invite them to their home to get to know and to care about. It's our privilege and opportunity to reach out to people in godly love as he has reached out to us. Ashley. I think another response to your question is, unfortunately, it's an individual responsibility for everybody because there's nothing that one person can do to help, you know, to change our eradicate, you know, the um, what's Selfishness. prejudice that we yeah. have. But I yeah. think each individual has to take the responsibility upon themselves to have that unjudgmental character towards everybody. Maybe by us, you know, bracing that, then we can be an example to everyone else. But it's, you know, nothing that we can do. Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. I love the refocus here because sometimes we hear a message like this and we can then be tricked. Uh, the devil's right there to trick us to take that little light and intercept it and go, yes, now it's my job to get everybody else to be loving. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. It starts with yourself, that we are responsible each individually for our own conduct and methods that we live in our life. And it's exactly right. Beautifully said. Ken. Uh, somebody that I'm really totally respected and, and loved and every, I, I won't mention any names because everybody probably would know who he is uh, you know took his membership away from our church and placed it with another church uh, that I think meets on Sunday and the reason for that I think was because he felt that we were somehow too much of a closed society or too you know too much on a closed circuit somehow and you know it, it's amazing to me that I can find so much value here and and yet know that I can walk out of this room and find myself thinking that somehow I'm better than the people that I have to talk to or that I have to deal with, you know, on a daily basis. And I mean, all of us have to 
have to deal with that because we're we're all dealing with people who, for for one reason or another, do not choose to pursue an ideal such as we are choosing. In other words, we we understand what it is to love Christ. We understand what it is to to want to share the love. But there are so many people who, who have just thrown the baby out with the bathwater. They have just said, I can't deal with these people. They're, they're barbarians. They're, they're uh, drug addicts. They're whatever they are. And, and so how do we, how do we, I guess what maybe you're suggesting the first step is recognizing our own weakness and that we in our own strength can't be loving toward anybody. That our own natural heart is filled with fear and insecurity. And fear and insecurity leads us to see threats in other people that we want to protect ourselves from. That's why we see people different than us as a threat. That's where racism and sexism and all this stuff comes from. Their own, our own fears and insecurities cause us to, to have to put other people down in order to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Okay? We re- that's our infection, our inheritance from Adam. It's, it's like the parable t- Jesus told of the publican and the Pharisee in the temple. The Pharisee was so thankful he wasn't like the sinner, but the the publican, first of all, he recognized he was a sinner and asked for God's mercy. And we have to all recognize that we are sinners and need outside help. That's exactly right. And then once we recognize that, we open the heart, we go to God and ask for His heart. It says Romans chapter 5, 5, that He pours His love into our hearts. We can't generate that love, but as we receive, then, what was it, the text earlier today? That as freely we have received, freely give. We've received God's love. We are to freely receive it. We're freely to give it. Thoughts about that? Well, be thinking about how we can in the, in the uh, future especially in the next few weeks, how we can reach out to the visitors that might come to the Good News Tour and make them feel welcome. You know, the College Hill Church is a large place. You've gone over there when you're first time going in there. Does it, can it be intimidating? Yes. Yes. Can you be ignored? Yes, you can be. So we have our work cut out for us to really demonstrate the, the warmth that we want people to see that comes from knowing Christ in our lives. All right, in closing then, we'll go to Thursdays, and let's talk about the prayer factor. I'm going to talk about what is prayer, and I was going to ask you to give me some examples of Bible prayer, but we only got about 90 seconds left, so I'm just going to... Examples of Bible prayer, we got David in the Psalms, we got Solomon's prayer for wisdom, we got the tax collector, was just mentioned, be merciful to me, a, a sinner. But what about when Abraham talked to God about sparing Sodom? Would you count that? Or when Moses would go and talk to God face to face as a man speaks to a friend, would you count that as prayer? Or, G- or the, the three and a half years that the disciples would sit and actually talk with Jesus while they're walking on the road or, or sitting at his feet, would you count that as prayer? Yes. You bet. That is actually the most best examples of prayer at all. Uh, this is out of Faith I Live By. It says, If we keep the Lord ever before us, allowing our hearts to go out in thanksgiving and praise to Him, we shall have a continual freshness in our religious life. Our prayers will take the form of a conversation with God as we would talk with a friend. He will speak His mysteries to us personally. Often there will, be, there will come to us a sweet, joyful sense of the presence of Jesus. Have you all had that experience? Conversing with God is with a friend. Talk to him, just like you would your friend. That's what prayer is all about. And then I was going to ask you the question, what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? As it says, if you have never asked anything in my name, uh, Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, but when you do, you can have all these things. 
Well, Substitute Christ, page 100, says, But to pray in the name of Jesus is something more than a mere mention of the name at the beginning and the ending of prayer. It is to pray in the mind and spirit of Jesus while we believe his promises, rely upon his grace, and work his works. In Desire of Ages 668, But to pray in the name of Christ means much. It means that we are to accept his character, manifest his spirit, and work his works. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray today, that your spirit will be poured out, regenerating our hearts and minds to be like Christ, so that our prayers will be in the name and character of Jesus. That we will go forward from this place, revealing the love that Christ has revealed to us. That we will reveal this love that you have for us to others. Empower us this week and the weeks to come, that we will be uh, faithful representatives to you in our work, in our home, and that we will be able to to be a faithful representative to you in the weekend coming up of the Good News Tour. And we pray that your spirit will work in this community and your angels will work in this community. You will hold back evil forces and the spirit might fall, the fire might fall, the latter rain, that hearts and minds can be changed and a spark, a fire will start here that will go around the world, that will lighten the world for your coming. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.